I've entitled my message this evening as, Are You Prepared to Die? Are you prepared to die? Now, you may say there's a beginning of the year and you're talking about dying. You know, we want to live. 2023 has just come about. We are looking forward for it. And you're thinking, are you prepared to die? You must remember that if you're not prepared to die, you're not prepared to live. If you're not prepared to die, you're not prepared to live. And this evening, I would like to give you a little brief overview, if you were to say, through the book of Ecclesiastes. A couple of verses were read to us this evening. And oftentimes, we don't read the book of Ecclesiastes. I wonder if you have read it and studied it. You know? Because as soon as you open the first chapter, the second verse tells us, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And immediately say, if everything is meaningless, what's the point of reading this book at all? Okay, and we close the book. Or we look at all the contents in that book and say, hey, this was Solomon. He messed up his life and he's trying to teach us something, no point listening. But if you notice, Solomon, the wisest man, gives us some perspectives on life looking at the end. Looking at the end, he says, learn to live your life keeping that in mind. There's a book that's entitled Living Life Backwards. It's a study on the book of uh, Ecclesiastes. It's a good book. If you find it, read it. Living life backwards. The only certain thing in life is death. The only certain thing in life. I often quote this statement by George Bernard Shaw, which said, the statistics on death are staggering. One out of every one person dies. That's the only certain thing in life. But oftentimes, we don't even think about it or prepare for it. And when it suddenly comes into our lives, we get scared, we get worried, and we are saying, how come it happened so soon? But that's the only certain thing in life. And if you and I prepare ourselves for that, and then in the light of that end, so live our lives today, life will have a lot of meaning. And because people are not willing to face death, they are not prepared for death, they don't even talk about death. I'm sure you would not have had discussions if you were to say. They say, as soon as something happens about death, they say, no, don't, don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. And we want to have different words that we use when a person dies, right? We don't say he died. He will say he passed away or he'll say went to a better place, you know. Different, different words we use. In fact, there's a whole website that is there on words that you can use instead of death. You know? Interesting, isn't it? Why? Because people don't want to face death. And as a result, they somehow want to put it out of their minds, even though they know that's the only certain thing in life. They try and fill up their lives with different things that the world has to offer. Live life to the fullest. Enjoy life. Eat, drink and be merry. For tomorrow you die. You know? They know death is going to come. But instead of facing up to that and so living their lives today, they think they can have the best of both worlds by enjoying life and somehow they will enjoy life after that. No, it does not work out that way. Solomon here uses what we call as a literary pessimism where he starts off with a negative and he says, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And then he goes through that whole book giving us different, different things which are meaningless. 
you go to work in the morning, you come back at the end, you get your salary, you get your money, at the end of it all you die, what happens to that money? You pass it on to your children, they use it, they misuse it, what's the point? You have gathered accumulated goods, you have gathered different different possessions, you have reached the top of the ladder, at the end of it you die, what's the point? So he starts off with the meaningless, goes on into the middle of the book on giving different different illustrations about what happens in life and then he speaks about death. You remember those passages that was read to us this evening? It is better to go to a funeral than to go to a party. When you read that it may say, hey, what is he talking about? But what is he trying to get across to us? He just think about it, think about it. What is really important in life? And then finally at the end of the book, chapter 12, what does he say? Remember your creator in the days of your youth. That is how the whole progression of the book is all about. Now, it's a very interesting book. In fact, I did a whole series of studies on this book. So I'm excited about sharing certain truths with you this evening. First of all, when you are thinking about this word, vanity, vanity, or meaningless, meaningless. Sad to say, the English translation has really messed it up, if you were to say. The Hebrew word that is used there is hebel, which basically means a breath or a vapor. A breath or a vapor. So, the first thought that we must understand when the Bible is saying that life is meaningless, it's not life is meaningless, it's basically life is just a breath. Life is just a breath. Now, when I'm thinking about life is just a breath, what's the application of this? How do we understand that it is just a breath? First of all, that life is very short. Life is very short. What happens when you blow out a candle? How long does the puff of smoke last? You smell it. You see it. It's very real. But it's also transient, temporary, and it very soon vanishes away. That's what life is. That's what life is. Time flies, we say, isn't it? January 1st, 2023, and you may say, where did 2022 go? Okay. Time flies, and as you grow older, it flies faster. <laughs> okay. So when you're thinking about time flying, life is short, life is short, nothing seems to last. So if you're thinking about, I'm going to live for a real long time, remember the rich fool who said, this is what I will do, I will break down my barns, I will build bigger ones, and I'll say to my soul, eat, drink, you have goods laid up for many years. He thought that he had many years, but life is short, life is short. Because none of us have any control over our lives. That is why the question is, are you prepared to die? If you are prepared to die, then you would be able to live life in the light of that fact that yes, one day death is going to come knocking on our doors. Would we be able to welcome it? Or would we say, so sorry, I didn't expect it. Life is short. Secondly, life is elusive. Life is elusive. The smoke that is in front of your eyes when the candle is puffed up, you know, if you try to grab that smoke and put it into your pocket, can you do that? No. You can see it, but you can't catch hold of it. That is what Hebel, 
life is a vapor, meaningless or vanity is all about. Life is short, life is elusive. You think you're going to get something out of life. That's why people go to work, that's why people slog it out. And when they reach their midlife, they have what is called as a midlife crisis because they want to achieve something in life. And if they have not achieved it by the time they've re reached that midlife, or if they've got older and then they wonder, when I was young, I had my dreams, but now I've got old, it's still a dream. And you wonder, what is that to life? Life is elusive. You thought you would get something out of life, but as the years go by, it is all very, very like a puff of smoke. <laughs> it is like when you are building castles. When you go to the seashore, you may like to build a nice big castle. And you say, hey, this is the castle that I have built. What what happens when the tide comes? Can you say, hey, stop the tide, I built this castle? No, the tide comes and then washes off all the big castles that you have made. That is what the writer here is speaking about. If you notice in Psalm 103, the scripture tells us, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. We imagine that we will live forever. We think that our lives are built with granite rather than of sand. We think that we are in control. We imagine that we can make a difference in this world and accomplish things of lasting significance. But at the end of it all, life is very, very elusive. So if life is short and life is elusive, how then should we live? How then should we live? And this book, the book of Ecclesiastes, gives us some very clear insights. Number one. Let me ask you a question this evening. Where does your heart find satisfaction? Where does your heart find satisfaction? And are you personally discontent with something in life? Where does your heart find satisfaction? And where is your discontentment? It is like, you know, if your contentment was and satisfaction was, if I have so much money, you have that so much money now. Are you satisfied? Are you still discontented? What are you trying to fill up the emptiness in your life with? And an honest assessment of our discontentment of life leads us to understand that there's more to life than what this life offers. This is why you life from the viewpoint of your death. If you have never thought about death and you think this life is everything, then you would somewhere along the line would still be elusive, trying to capture something, and you're still living discontented lives. So here, the scripture is telling us, as Christians, we have a hope, isn't it? We have a hope. And the hope that comes in, because life does not end here on earth, because there is a future that God has prepared for us. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10 tells us, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. If you notice, you know, the scripture tells us about speaking of the Lord. 
the Lord will crush him. He will put him to grief. And because of the offering that God has made for us on the cross, we become his offsprings that we have life forevermore. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 10 speaks about what is that for the toil that we make under the sun. The same word toil is used for the word anguish that the scripture speaks about Jesus. Jesus went through the toil for us so that life, toil here on earth is not a meaningless toil, but because he faced the anguish, you and I have an assurance that life here on earth is not really the end, but there is life in the future. This is why we must live our life with our heart inclined heavenwards. With our heart inclined heavenwards. Don't be like a chicken. What does a chicken do? Constantly looks down, isn't it? Looking for worms all around. But what does the eagle do? The eagle doesn't look down. The eagle is always soaring up. That's why the scripture tells us, wait upon the Lord. Because if we wait upon the Lord, you and I will renew our strength. If our eyes are heavenward, if our eyes are sure that there is more to life than the physical that is here on earth, then we are going to renew our strength. This is why in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, it says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not vain in the Lord. Knowing that your labor is not vain in the Lord. What Solomon is teaching us in the book of Ecclesiastes is not eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die, but because tomorrow you die and there's a time of accounting, so live your life here or not, making the best use of it. Labor, make the best use of it. Enjoy it in the sense of living life for the Lord. In fact, words related to joy are used at least 17 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now I may say, that's strange, isn't it? When you're thinking about meaningless, meaningless. But joy, how can we have true joy in the midst of the drudgery of life today? In the midst of the monotony of life today? When you know there's a future and you're living for the future, keeping that end in mind, then you know that your labor is not vain in the Lord. Thirdly, a question I need to ask each one of us this evening is, do you know what time it is? Do you know what time it is? Timing is very, very important, isn't it? It is critical to live our lives with an acute awareness of God's timing. God's timing. Now you may say, it, you know, how do we know? God's timing. Because oftentimes when someone passes away, we say, too short. Or we say, how did it happen so suddenly? But God's timing, God's timing. This is the important thing. Do you know what time you are living in? The time that God has given to us today. Today is the life that God has given to us. That's why the scripture constantly tells us, isn't it? Today, if you hear God's voice speaking to your heart, harden not to your heart. Because you don't have a tomorrow. None of us have any guarantee about tomorrow. Today has been given to us. So the book of Ecclesiastes tells us, hey, make use of the day that God has given to us. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 was a chapter that speaks about the time 
time, time. There is a time for everything. There's a time for everything. And the scripture tells us that he has made everything beautiful in his time. He has made everything beautiful in his time. When you think of that verse, what does that mean? First of all, that our times are in his hands and they are established by God. They are established by God. We are not in charge of time. He is in charge of time. If the rich fool said, I have goods laid up for many years, what did God tell him? He says, fool, tonight I require your life. He thought he had time. But God says, hey, you don't have any time because you are not in charge of time. I am in charge of time. And the time that I have given to you is today. So today when God gives us life, this is the way that you have to live. How? Recognizing that he has made everything beautiful. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Every morning when you get up, give thanks to God that he has given you a day. Isn't it? You could have gone to bed, not got up in the morning. You could have died in your sleep. In the morning, don't take it for granted that this is your life. Don't take it for granted that this is your time. No, time has been given to us as a gift from God. And as a result, live life grateful. The word translated beautiful can also mean suitable. He has made everything suitable in his time. In other words, he has appointed a suitable time for everything. There is a suitable time for everything. Today, God has given to us, we are meeting together to rejoice together for a life well lived. Each day that God gives to us, we give thanks to God for the life that he has given to us. And we are saying, Lord it's your gift to me. I want to make sure that the life that I live today will be well lived before you. Now, Solomon is not saying, have the attitude of, don't worry, be happy, everything will all be okay. No, no. What Solomon is saying is, live life every day, recognizing that God is the one who is in charge of your life. God is the one who is in charge of your time. And he has made everything suitable, fitting for the right time, the right purpose. The Bible also tells us that he has set eternity in our hearts. He has set eternity in our hearts so that man can't find out the work that God has done from the beginning even to the end. He has set eternity in our hearts. Now, Christmas has just gone by. If you have had small children and you have given them gifts, you know, oftentimes the children are more happy with the gift wrap paper or maybe the box that they came in and they play with the box. Small kids are not big kids, okay? And they are happy with the box that came in because the box may seem more attractive. And oftentimes that's like us, even as adults. God wants to do the internal working in our lives, but we are happy with what? Just the box. We are happy with the wrapping. God is focusing on the gift, the substance that is deep down inside us. We look only at the external, but God is emphasizing the internal. He makes everything beautiful in its time, including our losses, including our hospital experiences, including our failures, 
including our brokenness, including our battles, our fragmented dreams, our lost romance, our heartache, our illness, even if it is a terminal illness, the scripture tells us he makes everything suitable in his time. What does it mean? God is more interested inside than what is happening on the outside. That's why Paul could so confidently say, even if the outer man is wearing away, the inner man is being, <coughs> is being renewed. So we and I, you and I need to live life from an eternal perspective. Let me share with you this illustration of the Jewish psychiatrist Viktor Frankl, who was arrested by the Nazis in World War II and was put in the infamous death camp. He was stripped of everything, property, family, possessions, and a manuscript he had spent years researching and writing on, finding meaning in life. That manuscript had been sewn into the lining of his coat. Now it seemed as if nothing and no one would survive me, neither a physical nor a spiritual child of my own, Frankel wrote. I found myself confronted with the question of whether under such circumstances my life was ultimately void of any meaning. Everything has been taken away from him. A few days later, the Nazis forced the prisoners to give up what little clothing they still wore. And he writes and says, I had to surrender my clothes and in turn inherited the worn out rags of an inmate who had been sent to the gas chamber. Instead of the many pages of my manuscript, I found in the pocket of that newly acquired coat a single page torn out of a Hebrew prayer book which contained the Jewish prayer Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And he writes and says, How should I have interpreted such a coincidence rather as other than as a challenge to live my thoughts instead of merely putting them on paper. And reflecting on this in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he says, there's nothing in this world that would so effectively help one to survive even the worst conditions as the knowledge that there is meaning in one's life. He who has a why to live for can bear almost anyhow. He who has a why to live for can bear almost anyhow. Why do people collapse? Because they say, how did this happen? How did this happen? And as a result, they don't have the why for it. And they say, what's the point of living? But the scripture teaches us through the book of Ecclesiastes, when you know the reason for your living, then no matter what happens in life, you know, he's in charge, he's in control. There's an end to all this. And he's the one who's working in us. Whatever externals may be there, we allow God to do his internal work in our lives. <clears throat> Moving further, a couple of important things that the preacher Solomon mentions in chapter 3. Three things, if you were to say, in short. Knowing this, how should we then live? Number one, he says, enjoy life. Enjoy life. He says, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good as long as they live. Verse 12. I know that there is nothing better to them to do 
than to enjoy life. Are you enjoying life this morning, this evening? No. How is life treating you? Oftentimes when we ask people the question, they say, oh, this has happened, that has happened, or under the circumstances. God doesn't ask you to live under the circumstances. He wants you and I to live over the circumstances because he's in charge of the circumstances. Know the end, know what God is doing, and enjoy life, recognizing God has given you this life to live. Remember, not in a hedonistic manner, when it says eat, drink, not in a hedonistic manner, but recognizing that there is good enjoyment for life that God gives to us. If God has given us today, enjoy today. God gives us tomorrow, enjoy today, tomorrow. So that at the end of the day, when we evaluate our lives, we are able to say, Lord, this brought pleasure to my heart. And I'm sure I hope and pray this brought pleasure to your heart also. That's why the next part is in uh, verse 14. It says, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it and there's nothing to take from it. For God so worked that men should fear him. Enjoy life, but fear God. Enjoy life, fear God. Don't think you can do whatever you want when it says enjoy. No, fear God. Why? Because the third aspect of that is there's a judgment to come. There's a judgment to come. Yes, the end you look forward for. Enjoy life here, recognizing that God has given you this life. But also remember, there's going to be an accountability. Then in chapter 7, he gives us an invitation of death. Invitation of death. These verses tell us that life is limited by death. Your life won't go on forever. But death is not just a line you cross when your time is up. Death is an evangelist. He looks us in the eye and asks us to look him right back with a steady gaze and allow him to do his work in us. Death is a preacher. Death is a preacher. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? You know? When you go to a funeral, when you go to a graveside, death is a preacher. We recognize when we are not at a funeral, when you are not at a graveside, we think, hey, we control our life. Life is going on forever. But when you are there, you recognize death is preaching to us. Death is inviting us and recognizing, hey, this is what's going to happen to you. Are you going to be prepared for it? Are you going to be prepared for it? So Solomon has walked through his entire life. He was a rich guy. He had everything. He had all his horses. He had all his you know, palatial you know, houses. He said, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. And at the end of it, he says, hey, I confronted death. Because when I die, what's going to happen? So death he's now speaking of in chapter 7, <clears throat> where you understand that death is never an accident. Death is an appointment. It is a destiny that nobody but God can cancel or change. Death is never an accident. It is an appointed time. The Bible tells us that, isn't it? All the days of our life are numbered. We don't know the number, but he knows it. That's why he says, teach us to number our days. The Bible also says it is appointed unto man once to die. That is certain. He has planned it. It's an appointed date. We don't know the date, but he knows it. So as a result, how 
should we live? Number one, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Chapter 7 and verse 1 tells us a good name is better than fine perfume and the day of death better than the day of birth. Strange words. But let me try and explain this to you. <clears throat> as soon as a baby is born, I'm sure there's a lot of excitement, isn't it? Now, there's a lot of excitement. You can say that maternity wards are some of the most happiest places on earth. There's a joy that a little tiny baby brings. Why? Because when you look at a baby, you look at the hope for the future. You look at the potential that is there in that little baby for all that the kid is going to accomplish, if you were to say, right throughout their lives. And you look forward to that. You look forward to the first steps, you look forward to the first words, and you look forward to all that's going to happen step by step. The potential that is there in that tiny little baby. So birth is all about potential, but death is about fulfillment. Death is about fulfillment. Death is the fulfillment of life, and fulfillment is always better than potential, isn't it? Fulfillment is always better than potential. That is why he says it's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Two options. A fool can go to a place of mourning and says, hey, what's the point of living? At the end of it all, we are going to die. Hey, let me just waste my life. Let me just enjoy my life. And a lot of people will drown their sorrows and drink or something else, you know, just to quieten off the reality of death. But on the other hand, preacher, Solomon, wisest man, what is he really saying is, you know, it is better to the go to the house of mourning. Why? Because when you look at the reality of death and the re-examine your life in the light of that, you let go of the superficiality of living and recognize that there's more to living than life here on earth. So would you let death teach you the limitations of your life? Will you let it reshape your goals, your attitudes, the things you long for and work for and prayed for and hope for? Because if death is not going to sort of grip you and live by that, you think you're on the right track. But at the end of it all, you may find that you have missed it. Let me share with you another illustration. One night in the autumn of 1991, a person by the name of Gerald Sitsa was driving with his wife, his four children and his mother when their car was struck by a drunk driver. And in a moment... He lost his wife, his mother, and his four-year-old daughter. And in the aftermath, Sitza wrote a beautiful and profoundly moving book on loss and sorrow called A Grace Disguised. His reflections portray an unspeakable agony from the inside while powerfully describing how he and his surviving children slowly began to piece their lives together back again. Eight years after this book, A Grace Disguised, was first published, Sitsa had the opportunity to comment of how far he and his children have come in the time since the accident. And in the preface to the second edition of his book, he reveals 
that is rawness and utter bewilderment when the accident has happened has given way to contentment and great deep gratitude. And then he says, as strange as it may sound, I wish that every man could experience what I have, though without the acute suffering. People who survive catastrophic loss often say that they are survived by coming to see in time that somehow this loss had to happen so that things began to enlarge in their lives. The more important things in life suddenly fell into a you know, place as it were. It is as if God somehow stretches a person to the breaking point and then discovers that because they have been stretched, there's now room in their hearts and a mind for God, for life and for others that was not there before. And Gerald Sitza even writes of the sickness of the soul that can only be healed through suffering. That can only be healed through suffering. This evening, ask yourself, what's your vantage point when you look at your life? What's your vantage point? From where are you looking at? Are you looking at from what the world has to offer and saying, hey, this is what I'm looking for? Are you looking at the end? Looking at how it is all going to end? That there's going to be a time when you're going to meet up with the maker. There's a time that is appointed to die. Are you prepared to die? And to live a life here on earth, not with that reality and preparedness, is what you can call actually to be living dead while you're still living. And that's a sad state, isn't it? To be undead, if you were to say, you know. You're here on earth, you think you're living, but you're still dead. If that's your life this evening, remember, life is a gift that God has given to you and me. It is not something that we can profit by. It's not something that we are looking for, this is my gain, I have achieved this. No, no. Life is God's gift to us. And if life is God's gift to us, you and I need to make sure that we make the maximum use of the time that God has allotted to us. None of us knows how long we have. So make the best use of your time. This is why in chapter 12, he concludes his whole book with the emphasis of the urgency of embracing God's wisdom. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Better to figure out life now, sooner than later. When you approach death, when death suddenly knocks on your door and you say, I was not prepared. So are you prepared to die? It is never too soon to submit to God's Lordship. Three things in that part where he says, remember God by submitting to his Lordship. The word that is used there for remember, it's not just, you know, you have lost your memory and it's coming back. The word in scripture constantly when the Bible says the Lord remembered Hannah, the Lord remembered Joseph. It's not just a question of God lost his memory and he suddenly remembered. No. Remembrance is always attached to doing something. The Lord remembered Hannah and gave her a child. The Lord remembered Joseph and he brought. The Lord remembered the children of Israel and he delivered them. Remembrance is always leading to action. So when the preacher says at the end of that book, remember your creator, he's saying, hey, live in the light of the reality of death. 
and remember, do something to put things in order. Get your life back in order. Live a life that pleases God. Secondly, remember and respond to God as your creator. Remember, respond. He's our creator. If he's our creator, that means this life is not ours, isn't it? And if he died for us, since he died for us, he's bought us with his own precious blood. This life that we have doubly belongs to him. He's our creator as well as he's our recreator. So let none of us say, this is my life. I will do what I want to do with it. No, this is his life. It is his gift to us. And let each day be lived in a way that would recognize the brevity of life. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. In the days of your youth. Life is soon going to be shortened. None of us have any guarantee. The scripture says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. And my prayer to each one of us this evening is, sinner, be prepared to die. Because when you know the end, you will live life today backwards. In the light of eternity, you will live for God each day, recognizing that there's a gift that God has given to us. A couple of application questions this evening for each of us before we close. Number one, what strategies do you think people you know, including yourself, use to avoid facing the reality of death? What do you make the, of the idea that death can give us the perspective we need to begin to enjoy life? Secondly, when was the last time you went for a funeral? And how did you feel? What can you learn from that? Number three, list three things you would like to change about your life in the light of our study this evening and three things you would like to stay the same. And finally, number four, how are you going to live now that you realize that your death day has been set by God? What can you do to help other believers to live in the light of eternity? Let's buy our heads in prayer together.